Sup, Sharice? Hello. Thank you for doing this so late at night. I live with this podcast. I know. I appreciate it. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Kan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. We could talk about open office. Sure, let's talk about that very quickly. So, Sharice and I ran a little bit. It's not really an experiment, is it? Uh, it's more like... Well, it's the first time we ran it, so I guess that's kind of an experiment. We could decide at this point that it was worthless, and therefore we're not going to do it again. Oh, I th- it went pretty well. So anyways, open office, before we get too far into it, was basically like a digital meetup. Yeah. I sound like I'm not excited, but I think that in... in in actuality, it went pretty well. So basically, what spawned this was, I think that now when you look at the degrees of digital communication, there's a lot of different platforms and mediums, right? You have peer-to-peer like instant messaging, like a WhatsApp or iMessage. You have social media, which is broadcast. And then you have semi-private groups like a Slack or a Discord. And I think this experiment fell more into that realm, but it was more intimate because it was everyone on at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so and it's the like ability to see each other face to face. It was like a conference call in the format, in the sense that everyone had their mic on and we were all simultaneously there. But it was also way more casual than a conference call in the sense that it wasn't like trying to achieve some kind of business objective. It was exactly like if we had tried to all meet up for coffee or like to have a drink together, except digitally i had a good time yeah overall went pretty well Mm -hmm. and we basically had a few concepts and ideas around fashion that we loaded into the hopper and it was more to have something to rely on and something to discuss if we ran into things to talk about i would say that in general i think it makes a pretty big difference when you can see people's faces oh because interesting you know if someone is about to finish a thought or if someone wants to speak like you can kind of get that vibe, right? When you're in a group setting, like someone wants to say something, right? Yeah. But they want to be polite about it. Yeah. And it's sometimes tough when no one has their video on. Not to say you need to have your video on, but yeah. Yeah. It was interesting because it was really specifically about sustainability in fashion, which we didn't really intend for it to just be on that. Like it could have wound up being about fashion trends that people are excited about, but really the entire subject like we talked about different aspects of it and then from the consumer side or the production side, but all of it was revolving around sustainability, which I really appreciated. Yeah. So I'm excited to do it again. I think we're going to try to do another one in a month or so. You know what I like about it? I like that in general, the topics don't need to necessarily come from the realm of expertise. I say that because some of the things that we want to talk about don't always 
have a definitive answer, right? Mm-hmm. Some of it's experience based. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, for example, one thing that came to mind that I'd always been toying around was was the concept of creativity and like mental health, right? Mm-hmm. But barring like you know bringing in a psychologist, like I think that there's other ways for you to add value to someone's life in that discussion, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So I mean, yeah, because it is meant to be like a coffee hangout catch up. It does prioritize like our individual experiences and it is just an opportunity for us to get to know one another like it doesn't have to be this really intense thing like we're all going to be like attending some academic seminar like we are also just becoming better friends which sounds super cheesy but i think is true yeah no i totally agree all right which topic do you want to start with let's do yours all right my topic is Here's what happened when a menswear form designed a sneaker. Enlisting a bunch of obsessives led to a familiar looking shoe and a ready-made customer base. So Daniel Penny wrote this story for GQ. Mm-hmm. And let me sort of give you a, the overview of what happened. Archibald London collaborated with Style Forum. I'm not sure if that really needs an explanation. It's one of the OG forums for men's fashion. And the whole project's premise was the two coming together to create a menswear sneaker. And I say menswear sneaker because by throwing that adjective, it changes it from being like a performance sneaker or a runner, um, basketball shoe, etc. Can you give me a brief description of Archibald London? Archibald London is a UK-based brand. And what they do is they do a lot of D2C products direct to consumer okay cool and for them what they like to focus on is craftsmanship and cutting out the middlemen and it's not just fashion products yeah it's not just fashion i would say that in general what archibald does is not entirely unique not to say that it's sort of a zero-sum game there's a lot of these types of brands that have cut out the middlemen don't do wholesale and basically they are the brand and they work directly with a manufacturer, so they don't do wholesale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they hopefully pass on the cost savings to the end consumer. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like Warby Parker mm-hmm. for eyewear, but for footwear. And there's other ones out there. There's greats, etc. So there's quite a few options out there in different categories. Okay. That's all I need, just because it's like not a name that I was already familiar with. Yeah. So together, the two came together, made a sneaker. This one sentence I thought was pretty funny from the GQ piece. The object of this obsession is called the SF01, hand-stitched by Italian artisans and offered in a rainbow of antique calfskin and suede. When I first heard about these shoes, I felt a familiar tingle in my PayPal account. But when I finally saw the product shots, that urge to cop turned to bemusement. So to create these sneakers... They took 16,000 data points, came together alongside multiple rounds of samples to create a shoe that, in all honesty, looks very similar to the common project's Achilles. And for those unfamiliar with the Achilles, I would say it's like the quintessential, at this point in time, sort of basic-ass, expensive men's sneaker. It's like a tennis sneaker with premium materials, and it's something that you've seen a lot of other brands replicate. I'm pretty confident if you've looked at sneakers in the last five years, they usually have like a gold foil number series on the heel. And that sort of designates that it's common project sneaker. It's like a walking sneaker. 
Like it's not a. I don't know if I call it walking sneaker. Just call it. Just call like a lifestyle tennis sneaker, and let's move on. Do you think people get that? Okay, fine. Let's just hope that everyone can. Like it's not a sneaker you would do sports in. Uh, Yeah, call it a lifestyle sneaker. Okay. Okay. Whatever. Okay. Lifestyle sneaker. You get it. If you don't get it at this point, you're just gonna have to Google common projects Achilles. I mean, at this point, I don't even have any credibility to talk about fashion and sneakers, anyway. So you keep picking subjects. I think I'm more enamored with everything that surrounds fashion more than whether I actually have good taste or not. But okay. that's beyond the point. So <laughs> the interesting thing about this is the 16,000 data points, right? I think it's 16,000 data points plus what they thought they would get by using a quote-unquote community-led design process. So what I think is really interesting is that when you think about how they anticipated this whole process, it was let's survey the various style form members that are uh, active in the group and see how their insights and the things they want in a high quality sneaker translate into design. Mm. But evidently, I mean, you could have 16,000 data points, but your end result is something that many people have already seen before. It might be like a higher quality thing. And maybe this is it. Maybe the aesthetics of it are in themselves established but maybe there's small nuances and details but i think what i, I want to sort it's of interesting though isn't it because archibald london just set out to provide this very specific subset of people this style forum product obsessives with something that they want or that they have declared that they want so they put like all of those design decisions into their hands so like the question is so does this aesthetic really indicate what they want? It, it would seem so based off of like this data. I honestly think aesthetically it doesn't even really make a big difference because people will buy this, I think, on the basis of community connection. Mm-hmm. Well, also because they're committed to it. They're not really committed. Like I think it easily just not buy it, right? But it's smart on Archibald London's part because they've found actually this group of people that are obviously quite passionate about fashion and they've empowered them i think i meant committed to it in the sense that like they've been part of this process yes of designing it yeah yeah and so they've they've bought uh, design like well i mean if you want to say whatever they, answer they've service put design in, they've put in something more into the process of potentially purchasing this item because they yes. were They've been asked questions, they supplied answers, they asked their own questions, and all of that is like my time and energy connecting myself to like this product, which is going to probably convince me to buy it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I don't disagree with what you just said there. But the thing that I actually want to talk a bit more about is participatory design. So this is a concept that's been around since the 60s, or officially since the 60s. And I'm going to read this quote from Wikipedia. Participatory design, originally known as cooperative design and now often known as co-design, is an approach to design attempting to actively involve all stakeholders, such as employees, partners, customers, citizens, and users in the design process to help ensure the results meet their needs and is usable. Participatory design is an approach which is focused on process and procedures of design and is not a design style. 
Is that pretty clear? Pretty straightforward, right? Yeah. I mean, Wikipedia, they know how to write their blurbs. <laughs> yeah. So what I find interesting is that in this day and age, I think that we're, as brands, we, we try to empower community, right? And I think empowering community means a lot of things. It could be discussion and topics. Like, I mean, for us at Making, it's like, hey, let's empower community through conversation and stories. I mean, we opened right? by talking about open office. Exactly. And if you want to look at the other stuff, such as Archibald, they're actually giving the reins to someone to design the product. And I, and I wonder what happens when this is too liberally applied and if there's actual weight behind this participatory design or is it as almost everything out there, it doesn't work on the extremities, meaning you can't really have full participatory design where it's a blank slate. You actually always need to draw and carve out the parameters because otherwise the outcome is just nothing for nobody, mm. right? You're like one of 16,000 people that have contributed ideas towards something that is just really for your own personal use case. It doesn't actually represent the the exact sort of needs of the overarching community. Yeah. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm saying that I'm saying that from a very sort of like I, I used an example, whether that's true or not. Um, I think there's a lot of ways of looking at it because I've actually thought a lot about this in terms of what happens when you have a very intelligent, passionate community and you give them the opportunity to solve challenging problems. There's actually a, a cookware company that started. I need to find it. Well, while you're finding that, you read a funny sentence from this article, but there's a funny sentence I wanted to read. It's relevant, I promise. So the CEO recalls a call he got from one of the members. And a member of the forum explained that he doesn't wear socks and instead rubs cocoa butter on his feet and wears shoes. So he asked if the cocoa butter reacts well with the kangaroo leather. In co connection to this topic that you're talking about, you know, like, is this product really the best because so many people were surveyed or does it like you said, become nothing to nobody. What does knowing that this one person yeah. uses cocoa butter on his feet and wants to know how that reacts to kangaroo leather, like how does that actually serve a bigger group of people rather than just like that single individual? What I do find interesting is that if this is something that no people don't know about, maybe it becomes a new way of <laughs> experiencing a product. Right. It's like, oh, you didn't know that you could do that. Well, hey, you know what? Should you want to do this? You can definitely go and go sockless and rub cocoa butter on your feet, for example. So I think that's kind of interesting. So I wanted to kind of go back to what I mentioned before. There's this cookware company called from Food 52 or Food 52. And one thing they do is they actually really take into account community opinions and feedback. So they make basically pots and pans and one on cookware that fits the general vibe of, of their community. And I, I think they've actually done very well in that aspect. So I do wonder if we look at the whole design process, and especially when it comes to fashion, right? There's form and function. Does it make more sense to have community involvement when you have something more mm -hmm. in the realm of function? So meaning that Aesthetically, I think that we will always have difference of opinion, but I think there's a bit more objectivity that's rooted in function yeah. and solving a problem. No, I agree. 
right? I'm actually reminded of, you would know this, of Kat Holmes' book, Mismatch. Uh, is that the one that was Yeah, at- it's the one that the Unexpected Connections SF dinner was sort of based around or featured. Yeah. So yeah. Mismatch is a book written by Kat Holmes is currently at Google and she is there kind of directing or helping to lead inclusive design at Google. And before that, she was at Microsoft doing the same thing, um, focusing on what inclusive design means. And she's written this book called Mismatch, How Inclusion Shapes Design, which you guys put me onto our unexpected connection slash inner trend. And then I started reading it and it goes exactly in line with what you were saying about like function when design requires something about function to tap into the community makes sense because you're asking the users what their actual lives are like and what they need. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't, no, I think that, go ahead. No, I think that it's, I think that's pretty, yeah. Like I, I actually just came, to that sort of realization over the course of this discussion but it kind of makes sense because subjectivity and objectivity i think that it makes more sense to kind of identify which problems are more rooted in objectivity and solving for that and uh, let, let's use this example right like let's say you're going to design a passport holder and your community uh they travel with a lot of different sim cards right and then that's an objective problem because 60 percent of your user base has this issue and if you solve for that properly then oh you know what then participatory design actually shows that it's an important application and, and use case mm-hmm. but if it's more like aesthetics like oh like colors oh then i don't know if that necessarily requires participatory design well it as a framework it could depending on your audience see so the interesting thing is that like or the interesting thing to think about is not everyone you survey their answers will have like the same level of value like you also need to know about like the people you're surveying so like let's say you're making a product for colorblind people then color does become super mm-hmm. important but you also need to know that the people you're surveying are colorblind right so mm-hmm. you, it wouldn't it wouldn't make sense to then just like open up a survey to a thousand people, but there you have no idea like what their vision is like, for example, mm-hmm. right? It's also about selecting that. Um, but then that's like a situation where color is part of the function, and I get what you mean about like some products yeah. and aesthetics are irrelevant to the function. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it's that's an interesting thing to think about as well with this Archibald London shoe, though, is that I'm not entirely sure if that style forum community is cohesive enough in terms of like what they want or need. Because I feel like even though they're like really interested in products and like, uh, you know, very concerned about certain aspects of the products it seems like there's a very large range of like disparity in like what they would consider to be like important mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oh i was gonna say like this is probably like the unpopular opinion but i think that in this case and in anyone that's trying to set up one of these types of participatory design frameworks it's like drawing out the parameters to solve, I think are really important. And p- 
part of me thinks to make this successful, this is this is me thinking from more of a, a consumer product approach, right? Sometimes when it comes to that process, it matters more that you have a personal point of view that you're trying to inject into a project mm-hmm. and the participatory design is not necessarily there for pure empowerment. Mm-hmm. It's more about, I actually am leveraging you to solve a problem. So it's not a matter of, I used to think that, hey, me giving you a voice to design this product will you know, make a better product, but I actually think that's incorrect. I think it's more about what, what is about your insights and your experience that help make it a better product. Not like I want to give you, um, your name on this. That makes sense. And I think there's a, it might sound like there's the same thing, but I actually think they're different because the way you apply their feedback changes the end result because you're not necessarily like, I'm going to find a way to fit in your feedback so it feels as though you're part of this. It's more like your feedback will be applied on the basis of making this something that will make it better. Ah, okay. I think I'm understanding now. So you, there's a distinction between participatory de- design where it's just kind of for the sake of having like community involvement to say that like, like that- everybody had their voice heard and you're yeah like are you trying to give them a warm fuzzy feeling inside or you actually trying to garner legit feedback exactly and then using participatory design to get like real data and real answers that can then inform actual like decisions that are useful yeah exactly yeah i don't really have too much to say but it was good to see this applied and put out in the real world so you kind of understand oh this is what the outcome is like i mean for me personally like i don't know if the sf01 outcome is necessarily a success like i don't really think it adds anything to the world of footwear and fashion because it feels so pretty much exactly the same thing based on like you're you're obviously from a little bit of a, a different world but having seen the shoe and then you right now typing in common projects Achilles, do you agree that they look the same? Yeah, I definitely do. I like that's I agree with you that this shoe does not do anything new in the world of It's kinda like footwear. Doesn't need to exist. It doesn't really. But I feel like Archibald London didn't really set out doing this to try to make a groundbreaking innovative product it really does feel like they decided these style forum members are our audience and we want to do something with our audience and and they kind of try to do both like do something with our audience that is going to make them feel good about like being part of this and then also like actually sift through these answers to make decisions about the product so yeah. the reason it doesn't uh, resonate with anyone else is because uh, like we're not part of style forum so it's just not for us i mean you would buy this sneaker if you can afford a common projects and no knock on anyone in that capacity but that's kind of what it is i don't know i, I just don't I, do, I don't really have any sort of concession for people that just do these sort of iterative products and not be straight up about it like hey, 
you know what i the thing that also maybe bothers me is like on their product page it doesn't really take into account how style forms input really sort of provided additional insight into this shoe that's what i was just gonna say that i am curious about like i am actually quite interested in the like hard data that they collected like all of those data points and the ways people use their sneakers i bet those are interesting answers just to yeah think about or like to see oh like turns out the style forum like users this is what they care about in terms of shoes like that would be cool i mean remove any bit about sf or style form and this shoe still generally stands on its own two feet in terms of being like a high quality product right so anyways that's that's my little rant around that yeah i think that they could have doubled down more on the consultation process and actually said you know survey responses included this and these were the questions and real-time feedback like rather than just to say that you did real-time feedback it would have been cool to show how that happened if it like actually happened and was used in the process of making it like that's the yeah. kind of stuff that makes it interesting right yeah i mean for for me i i've always been i wouldn't say always i i, I tend to exaggerate a lot don't i sharice mm-hmm. do. <laughs> i've been interested in the idea of of this participatory design on the basis that we talk about this a lot right it's you only know what you know mm-hmm. and there's a lot of things in this world that based on people's experiences expertise could enhance an outcome but un- unless you kind of bring together those people and find a way to both ensure the data is kind of laid out and extracted and applied properly it's really tough yeah definitely so for me it's like thinking about if if we all agree there's a certain issue in this current world and like let's make something up it's like hey how how do we find a way to properly compensate content creators mm-hmm. right what are the ways to do it and maybe that's about bringing together the full gamut of people you have content creators you have brand marketers you have equipment manufacturers all these people that all have different insights and how do you build sort of let's say a platform that allows people to be properly compensated etc but with, whether this is a problem you actually want to tackle is different okay with this hypothetical problem i think also thinking about participatory de- design more critically it's it's not just saying okay i'm going to bring together like a large group of people but it's like where do these people come from who are they like what is their financial situation their geographic situation like do they have families to support like how long have they been in the industry? And then also like what types of questions am I asking them? You know, it can't just be like, how do you think content creators should be compensated? Like that's an extremely open-ended question that the data you get from that may not necessarily be useful in considering when you're doing these kinds of activities, there's a lot of like lots of different points along the way where you have to make like thoughtful decisions so that you can be sure the final result is actually something useful to solving the problem that you're talking about yeah and isn't just warm and fuzzy like you said yeah i totally agree i mean for me like i've said i've I've thought a lot about this uh in various capacities whether it's more intangible problems that exist but also tangible problems like, oh, what would, whether whether or not these products need to exist in the world, let's not focus too much, but it's like, hey, 
if you were going to design the perfect jacket for a photographer or the best bag for a traveler Mm -hmm. you know all these other things whether they need to exist is a different thing but i'm just saying like hey these are problems that it'd be interesting to see what a very sort of select group of people and i'm not saying that sixteen thousand data points is required for you to actually achieve any level of success but it's more about hey you know what who are people that have a very strong analytical point of view and can basically take some sort of analysis and turn it into a solution because that's another thing too is like problems and solutions you know it's easy to to cite a problem but it's not easy to create a meaningful solution that's a really good segue into my subject okay let's go for it My topic is that the markup launched on February 25th, so last week. The markup is a investigative tech media platform that I've been quite excited about since hearing about it last year. They had a little bit of a kerfuffle last year that we don't have to go too much into, but some people might have heard of the markup because of that controversy where the editor-in-chief was fired and then rehired. So there's this all like internal kind of personnel issues. Anyway, they're launching now. Julia Angwin is the editor-in-chief. It was founded in 2018 by her and she is from the Wall Street Journal and ProPublica. She's an investigative journalist. Um, she and the markup received $20 million from Craig Newmark, the Craigslist founder. And a quote from Julia Angwin, she said, We're calling it a launch, but we're also cognizant of the fact that we've had several big public announcements prior to this. So this is a show our work moment for us. And I've, at this point, actually read everything that's on the markup website, which is something I really like because there's not a lot of it. So they haven't tried to like go out of the gate and have like a feed that's like 30 different stories. They've really kept it to this tight, high quality amount of material that they want people to read in depth and to engage with. So the first two investigations to give you an example of like the type of work that they do are both concerning algorithms. And the first one is about Allstate, which is a car insurance provider. Mm-hmm. And this is shock this is kind of an aside because this is not about car insurance, like today's subject. But essentially they discovered that Allstate has been trying to convince states in the US to let them use an algorithm that targets people who are already willing to pay a lot for their policy to pay more. So essentially, their algorithm figures out the people who are paying for their policies, um, like how 
consistently they pay it, how much they're willing to like accept increases, and then they yeah. target those people and increase the policies rather than basing it off of actual risk, which is what your car insurance should be based off of. And then the other long form investigation that the market has published is about how Google is treating uh, presidential candidate emails. So this an inconsistency in the way that they apply their algorithm mm -hmm. in terms of sorting what emails count as promotions and what emails go into like your primary tab. So that's just to give an example of like the type of work that the markup does. Yeah. At some point, you're going to explain why you're excited about it, right? Well, one, I, okay, I can start now on why I'm excited about it rather than continuing because I think you, that was a good enough picture of like what the markup is, right? So first of all, I picked this because I think it very personally that the markup fills a need that I have. And mm -hmm. it's because like I feel there's, I probably read too much news. I mean, you read even more than me. Okay. Like in terms of consumption of media, I read a lot and it's not always helpful, I think, to know too much. I mean, sometimes you need to have a large multiple perspectives, but other times it's really like mentally taxing to like be sorting through everything that you're reading and trying to figure out like, what of this is good and what of this like applies to my life. Okay. Can you, and can then, you, uh, explain a bit? Is this good? Is it in terms of truthfulness, comprehension? Oh, yes. I mean, truthfulness. Okay. I mean, truthfulness. Right now we're talking about like factual news and journalism, not like stuff I read for fun yeah. or leisure. Okay. Like it's, even though I feel like I am a discerning reader, sometimes it is still hard for me. I'm like, I'm going to openly admit it to like filter what is factual and rooted in you know proof evidence-based data and research and what is like conjecture mm -hmm. and just sounds convincing and like if that's hard for me i just imagine that it is yeah, also I've, even I've felt harder this before for too. other people i've for sure felt this before yeah and it's crazy to me that we've i've i've reached this point where i can be reading things and like feel uncertainty about like the the verifiableness of like what i'm reading so that's the reason i'm excited about the markup because they to i actually do have trust in them everything so far has struck me as being very transparent and very evidence-based expertise so like each of their investigations comes with a separate article that's how we did this research. Yeah. And I actually haven't read them, but I did scroll through it and like it exists for you to dive into if if you are having those questions. And even uh in their president's letter, they also talked about how they're they don't want to collect a lot of data from their readers. So they're making like certain privacy, certain commitments to like privacy policies. And all of that is backed up as well. Like a check like yeah. their links in terms of like how they're ensuring that sort of thing. So they just give me this real assurance that the legwork is real and that they're not just saying things like for the sake of saying it. We recognize the value that consumers put in transparency, right? Or just business, whatever, coworkers, personal life, transparency, right? But why mm -hmm. do you think it's so difficult 
for people to actually embrace and adopt this. Because, you know, this is a conversation I had over the course of the weekend and like it, it, it surfaces every so often and it's Noah, right? Noah's super transparent mm-hmm. about how they make their garments. They admit they're not fully sustainable, all these things. I don't know of very many brands in the streetwear slash menswear fashion space that have been that big and that open. And Noah's size mm-hmm. is relative, right? But I'm just saying like most people that are into menswear have probably heard of Noah. So mm-hmm. I find it fascinating because even I would say that we and Megan are pretty, pretty transparent. Like maybe we don't go out of our way, but if someone asks us, like we usually tell them, you know, this is how we feel about it or this is our thought process, well, what we but- don't do well. But I'm trying to understand why more people don't do it. Or is it just a matter of like a lot of self-confidence that regardless of whether or not this is put on a pedestal, I have confidence in a product that is not perfect. Okay. To be self-critical in this situation, I think that making could be more transparent. There are questions I feel like we have not been totally clear with on personnel and what the founder objectives are and you know who is actually the staff maintaining the site and what are our what are our priorities like in the coming year yeah i get those questions a lot personally like when people meet with me one-on-one and i do try to answer them honestly but it is a question of like well why haven't we made that information more public And I don't know if that's helpful. Like, I don't know what the impact that has on like our community and readers, but if we were truly like totally transparent, like then that information would be available. Yeah. I mean, I don't, when I think of it, I'm like when I, when I had, uh, since it's kind of like all out there right now, it's like when people talk to me and ask me how make it's going, I was like, oh, you know what? End of last year, end of 2019 was actually really tough. Right. We downsized, et cetera. We had to switch gears, like how we're going to generate revenue. And, you know, that meant that people had to like the, the way that we were funding the site and not really generating revenue. We were like, well, we have to kind of rethink that. Right. And we have to rethink what is the, the ultimate process behind how we keep making a float. Now that I think, I think maybe it was just like initially the, maybe the embarrassment of it. Well, I also think you answer your own question about like, why aren't more businesses radically transparent? Like not just saying we're transparent and giving a little bit of information, but giving like the actual ins and outs is because it can be embarrassing. And you feel like you want this to be private because you don't have control over it. Right. But can I bring it can I bring it back to the markup briefly? Because one of the things I wanted to say, which is related, is that to remind you, the markup is philanthropically funded. So remember, they have $20 million from the Craigslist founder. And yeah. in order for the markup to exist and be what they are and to not run ads on their site, like they've just said, they've said that they're never going to do, they need that. And there's there is a greater need for that beyond the markup like i don't just want the markup to exist i want other publications to exist that can have similar models like the markup and it seems like the only way that that can happen is for it to be philanthropically funded 
Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not saying I don't, I have no follow up here as to like how to make that happen. If any billionaires listen to this podcast, like we have a media yeah. outlet that would love your money. Um, it, that's clearly why they can operate the way they are, they intend to. Yeah. That's kind of how we were before a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then there's one more thing I wanted to say, which is about technology because the market focuses on tech and the president of the market, Nabiha Saeed said, I don't want to just publish this for people who are on Twitter who care already about tech coverage. I want a broader conversation about what tech means in your life. To me, the best way to do that is to enter physical space. And then Julia Angwin also said, nobody needs another tech news site. We do need another tech investigative site. Tech is the way power manifests itself these days. So this, I really hope that they do manage to fulfill. Like, I think it's really hard. Like, how are they going to reach this audience that's not already tech savvy people? Yeah. But it's a very, it's a great mission to have to like try to educate people who are seriously affected by tech like if you think about that allstate article like people who are paying too much for their car insurance and it turns out it's because allstate is doing this like nefarious policy markup like that person doesn't probably doesn't even know that like algorithms are being used to affect their policy but they're directly affected by it because they're paying more so how does the markup get in front of their eyes like i don't know if they can manage that, that would be. I mean, from the sounds really of it, amazing. their tech slant are things that affect you, but they don't really fall in the realm of sort of the the sexier part of tech, which is like product, right? You know what I mean? There's a lot of there's more interesting yeah. things like social yeah. media, etc. But these are the real. Well, it goes in line with their their vision of like the way tech affects your day to day life, and you don't even know it, like everyone in the states is required to buy car insurance so that's actual money out of your pocket mm -hmm. that turns out to be affected by tech mm -hmm. which i think is really cool and i totally agree is like not very sexy mm -hmm. yeah yeah so i really just picked this because i'm super excited about the markup and i want people to go read it and i also want them to like continue existing fingers crossed yeah hopefully more independent media yeah hopefully though like i have i try to keep my expectations low for like all existing outlets that i'm excited about because at any moment someone could fold that's how i feel yeah there is one i wouldn't say it's similar to the markup well actually i guess it is there, there's one publication i follow called truth out that is somewhat similar to the markup mm -hmm albeit it's a little bit more politically minded uh, and they're kind of the same way. Mm -hmm. They rely purely on donations and whatnot to exist, but it it's generally pretty good reporting. I, I, mm -hmm. You can kind of tell when the quality nice. of the reporting might dip because they're pretty transparent on how they spend their money as well and how they raise their money. Yeah, I think like for me, if there's a personal takeaway as well, it's like trying to be more selective about what I engage with rather than kind of doing like the broad canvas of everything out there. Yeah. Like just being aware of the fact that my ability to parse information is 
finite. And like when I'm tired or stressed, like my ability goes down. Yeah. So to be more careful about like which outlets I spend time on. It is interesting because truth today is so paramount to media and building that connection and that brand of truth keep thinking like how do you approach it is it about writing a lot of words is it about this transparency slant because in all honesty the markup could have these sort of side reports on how they acquired information but then that itself could not necessarily be purely objective and truthful right so like it's just the overall like sentiment about building a brand that is associated with things of truth I mean, I think this is connected to your topic when I was thinking about what the connection is about doing research and reaching out to a community and collecting data and then looking at that data. And I think now that, I don't know, I, I think now that the, the landscape is so inundated with information and like people trying to get you to trust in it, we really need to spend more time thinking about where like, how did people do this work? And you're totally right that, like, maybe behind the scenes, the markup process is not one that I actually should be trusting in. And if it's there for me to investigate, then I should do that. And I know it sounds like a lot of work, but, like, that's kind of what the landscape requires of us is to be looking into, to, be like, be more skeptical about how people got, like, their information. Yeah. I just think that it's it's actually not something you can just pick up overnight. It's actually oh, it's actually no. something that has to begin much earlier. It's not like the day you start caring about news, it, like by that time it's too late. Yeah. Yeah, dude. I mean, like both of us, it's not like we just started being aware of global affairs, right? And yet like at this point, I'm like talking about, oh, I should really be looking into the ways they investigate these stories. Like it took me a lot of years of like reading news to then be like, oh, I really do need to start caring more. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, um, anything else? No, that's it for me. People should be careful. I think about media consumption in general. That's my blanket statement, especially in uh, these days of crazy conspiracy theories. Uh, yeah. Stay sensible, folks. That's it. I think that is a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories, focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. 
You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at charisse at macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Charisse. And this is Making It Up.